I am so thrilled that Pantheon Podcast is now aligned with Adam and Eve dolls. I am sure you can figure out why it's the right fit for me, so to speak. And right now they're offering free stuff to spice up your bedroom along with your first order. You can select almost any one item for 50% off and then Adam and Eve will load you up with free stuff. <laughs> Enter offer code PJPARTY at checkout and get 10 Hotsy Totsy free gifts. A sexy item for him, a special gift for her, and a third item you'll both enjoy. And listen to this, you'll get six free spicy movies. And shipping is free. What a bargain. My fave is Clone a Willy in all different colors. Listen, you can be your own Cynthia Plastercaster right at home with your man, okay? So that code again is PJPARTY at adamandeve.com. Hey, this is Jorma Kalkinen from Jefferson Airplane and Hot Tuna, and you are listening to Rock and Roll Archaeology. Welcome to Pamela DeBar's Pajama Party, a Pantheon podcast. Music, culture, conversation. And good old-fashioned rock and roll. So now, I give you Miss Pamela and her pajama party. Come on in, dolls, and welcome to Pamela DeBar's Pajama Party, a Pantheon podcast. You're about to kick back and relax with the world's most famous groupie again. So I'll take that title and I'll tell you exactly what it means. A groupie is just someone who loves to be with the groups. Pretty simple. You want to feel that feeling with the bands that give you that feeling. You want to be right there with them and experience what they experience. And that's all it is. You know, a groupie is a good word. Um, I've written some books. Uh, you know, you probably heard of I'm With The Band. I've written four other books and I'm writing a sixth book right now. I have writing workshops all over the world with my dolls. I call them my dolls. I give rock and roll tours of L.A. called I'm With The Band Rock Tours. And I spend a lot of my time creating looks for people, uh, you know, fashion. I'm a fashionista, let's face it. And um, I'm writing another book, like I said. And I have all kinds of stuff going on. And I'm very excited, though to be a part of the Pantheon podcast, which is a network of rock and roll shows. And you can find us, all our shows, on Spotify and Radio.com and now on Apple and Pandora. And in fact, if you search, you can find us on 40 or 50 different podcast distribution platforms these days. And all of us here at Pantheon love telling the stories about all the great moments in rock and roll. We're trying to save the history. And there's something for everybody here. So many shows for you, so many flavors to choose. Anyway, find it all online at PantheonPodcast.com. Every time you tune in, expect lots of new announcements at the top of every show of Pamela DeBar's Pajama Party. And finally, this is the one that means the most to us. If you enjoy what we do here, please head over to Pantheon Podcast and share a show with a friend. Share my show. How about that? 
Today, I have an old friend of mine coming on. His name is Brian Ray. And he, right now and for many years, has been playing with Paul McCartney. But he has a fantastic history, too. He started playing when he was 15 with Etta James. So I'm really happy to have Brian here today. And he's really cute, girls. Okay, let's welcome Brian Ray, who I've known for many years, actually, and I'm very happy to say that. And he is here today to tell us all about his incredible career, his lengthy career starting as a teen. So, oh my God, Brian, so glad you're here. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me, Pamela. It's it's a great pleasure of mine to be here with you. Oh, God. You look fantastic for all of you in podcast land who... (laughs) can't see her right now. She's a vision for you. I just want to let you know. She's wearing a butterfly (laughs) and sparkles and a beautiful dress. Oh, Brian. You're very handsome, too. And are you single these days? I've got a face for podcasting. (laughs) Are you single? I am seeing somebody. Oh. Somebody who's delightful and brilliant and, uh, yeah. Wonderful. If she's listening. Okay, good. Her name is, yes. bring her to my birthday party Sunday. I, oh, yeah? Okay, yeah. maybe I will. Please do. I'd love to meet her. I was going to say, if you were single, all these lucky women out there might have a chance with you. But he's not single now. Okay. <laughs> Won't stop me from coming to your birthday party. <laughs> we'll bring her. I'd love to meet her. So I want to start really at the beginning so our listeners can hear your amazing saga, musical saga. Well, uh, <laughs> from the very beginning. Well, okay. Yes, yeah, well, musically. It's been a crazy ride. As you know, I I never really think about it much until I get in an interview and people then say, you know, they start reminding me of the things I did so many (laughs) years ago. And I go, wow, that's right. I've done quite a lot. But um, as a kid, I was lucky enough to have a sister, a half sister, who was 15 years my elder. Uh-huh. So when I was three, she was, you know, a senior in high school. Uh-huh. She was a homecoming queen. She was gorgeous, much like yourself. Uh-huh. Uh, we were in Glendale, California, uh, uh-huh. the gateway to Burbank, for those of you that don't know where Glendale is. And um, <laughs> so she was delightful. She's no longer with us, unfortunately. Oh, Jean Ray was her name. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, while in high school, she lived with our family just for this one year. Otherwise, she didn't live with our family. And uh, well, she would take me over to her girlfriend's house to babysit me. And there I would be with three or four of her girlfriends 
listening to Elvis and looking at pictures of Rick Nelson, Little Richard, Elvis, the Everleys. And it was just this combination of hearing this exciting music, looking at pictures of these incredible new artists. <laughs> yeah. And taking in the excitement of these, you know, young teenage high schoolers. I was three or four years old, <laughs> but I got it. It was just all happening all at once, and it was very intoxicating. Well, it was new. It was brand new, right? Brand new. I mean, and these girls were experiencing this for the first time. It was a, So you must have felt that incredible energy. I did. Yeah. Yeah. I guess there was some part of me that took note and went, that's what I want to do when I grow up. <laughs> yeah. And they would bring home the albums. Yeah. And I saw that the haircuts and that. And the, I took in the music and I watched their faces ooh and awe over yeah. these guys. Yeah. And it was all one big visceral experience. As a young boy, I saw this this power and this joy and the fire. And and you could just tell there was another element. And that element yeah. was sexiness, you yes, know. Yes. But I'm a kid. I didn't know what that was yet. I yeah. just knew that these young women <laughs> were lighting up over this yeah. thing. So. I wanted up. in. The music was so exciting. It was rebellious. And what kid doesn't like rebellion? Yeah, so yeah. I was in from an early, early age. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. When did you start actually playing? And what made you decide to pick up the guitar? Well, let's see here. I was a ham. And mm-hmm. I remember in fourth grade having a, a, a guitar that uh, was given to my brother uh, to, to learn and uh, he was left-handed. They gave him a right-handed guitar. He lost interest. He came home and he taught me whatever he had learned at his lesson. Uh-huh. <laughs> and within two weeks, I had just like, you know, started uh-huh. really, I was making up chords and starting to write songs. You know, I was doing that thing, you yeah. know. Were but your parents I, uh, helpful or did they, did they take you seriously musically? Fortunately for me, my parents were always supportive. They were never, ever discouraging. I remember one time uh, my grandfather, who I didn't see very often, Tom Ray, mm-hmm. who owned a car dealership in, in Glendale, Tom awesome. Ray Pontiac. Awesome. And, uh, but anyway, he was at, you know, a, you know, a country club Republican grandpa. Yeah. And he one time said, Brian, when are you going to put down that banjo and come sell cars for me? <laughs> Which I think is a good country song, <laughs> but country that was song. the only discouraging uh, words mm-hmm. I ever heard in my family. And, and I'm sure you didn't take it seriously. I didn't at all. I blew him <laughs> off. Like, fortunately, I only saw him every great once in a while. I just thought it was the silliest thing ever. I was like, "Yeah, watch." Yeah. <laughs> and um, no, my parents were uh, pretty supportive. Okay, yeah. good, good. Makes a big difference. Yeah. Foundational wise, right? Yeah. The foundation but of you being know, okay, being allowed to express that. That's true. I mean, and there's stories of kids for whom that wasn't the case and they did it anyway. Yes, they did it know, anyway, of course. Because that desire burns so hot. Yeah, yeah. That you're going to find a way to it, you know. That's true. You know, the yeah. will of a, of a teenager. Yeah. <laughs> not to be trifled with. Yeah. You know? And of course, you're a little younger than me, but we came up in a time when Things were shifting so intensely, and we, the teenagers, actually were important human beings for the first time. Mm. It's kind of started in the 50s, though, but 
in the 60s, we were a very important group of humans for all kinds of reasons. That's very true. There was a social, cultural sort of big boom that was going on right then. Yeah. Uh, Post-Second World War, post-Eisenhower, you know, sort of an enlightenment period. Yeah. Uh, And we are so fortunate to have been raised in this time, you know, and and witness it. Yeah. In Southern California. So yeah. you are an actual California boy. You're born here. Born and raised California. <gasps> yes, yeah. Me too. Born yeah. at Hollywood Presbyterian, right down the street, which is now a Dianetic Scientology. Uh, is it? My yeah, son was that born big there. Blue building. Is you that mean right? it's not a hospital anymore? No. <laughs> oh no. Yeah, my son was born there. No, but they can remove your phaetons or whatever that is that they do <laughs> if you, if you need some phaetons removed. <laughs> They're going to come after me after this. I know they will. <laughs> Tom Cruise, I'm sorry. <laughs> and John Travolta. Yeah. There's too many of them, really. Yeah. We won't go there. We won't. Okay. <laughs> right. We already did. So but... what was your first band that you formed? Wow. Okay. Well, I think my very first band, gosh, could I even call it one? I was like 13 and I had a little band of uh, neighbors, basically. Yeah. And in that band, I was uh, a turtleneck and sport coat wearing blonde kid trying to fashion myself after Eric Burden. And we didn't have a name yet, but I had just seen Eric Burden on television. I remember him in a turtleneck patting his legs. Yes, I remember it so well. Yeah. (laughs) And and so that's what I did. I stood there in front of a mic and I couldn't sing yet or anything. I was 13. Yeah. I I don't think my voice had even dropped yet. But I was just there patting my corduroy panted (laughs) legs. Oh, I can uh, picture it so Trying to be Eric Burden. But, yeah, yeah. And, but you didn't. What, what did you call a band of neighbors? That's a good. That's that, a good name for a band. I I'd have to agree. That is a good name for a band. We <laughs> we didn't go far enough for me to actually name the band. But I think my first band that I remember naming was was the Masterbeats. Oh, that's Ooh, a good name. That's a good one. It really huh? is. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that was junior high school friends. My best friend back then was also named Brian, Brian England, who's also unfortunately no longer with us. Oh. He was the son of Cloris Leachman and mm-hmm. uh, George England Sr. And, yeah, we, had, we were ripping and running together in eighth grade and doing all the things that you do in the eighth grade, chasing girls and trying illicit substances and, and playing our music. And mm-hmm. we had a great varied catalog of kind of deep cuts yeah. and rockers, Good. you know. We did everything from uh, Jeff Beck Truth to Procol Harum to Aretha Franklin. You know, uh-huh. It was a, kind of uh-huh. a deep cut. It was sort of like radio used to sound back then when, yeah. it, when it played everything. And so. did you, were your hair growing out already? Or? Oh, yeah. My hair yeah. was quite long by then. <laughs> yeah, I was punished for something once and had to get a haircut. Oh, but uh, that was the terrible. Last. That was the last time I was punished that way. So, okay. uh, yeah, we, we had long hair. Uh-huh. Yeah, we, we did. We were having a good time playing all the kegger parties in town. And, uh-huh. yeah. and when you were 15, didn't you – something happened to you at 15? Is this the band you were in at 15, the Master Beats? Well, let's see. So that same band uh, turned into a band that backed up – Bobby Boris Pickett playing the Monster Mash. And uh, how so, did that come about? Because he was already 
a faded star, wasn't he? Bobby Borsch. Sure, he was. He was a faded star, but <laughs> he was famous every year because when the Monster Mash would come around every Halloween, he would have a hit again. Someone wanted to hire him to play parties a lot in October, I would imagine. Of course. <laughs> yeah. September, October, we'd be out there doing Six Flags over Texas and oh, throwing okay. chicken wings out into the audience and scaring little kids, telling them there were bat wings. Okay. And, uh, Playing, wow. uh, you At know, fifteen. Yeah, well, that was a little later. A little so, later. about I, I guess that was about I was about seventeen, okay. something like that. Still Fantastic, in high school, you though. know. And you know, I was at that party that you played. That's that coming up. Phil Kaufman. Yeah. With and you played there with Bobby Boris Pickett. That's right. So that band was asked to play the party that you just alluded to. It was a party to raise money to pay the fine for Phil Kaufman Correct. to pay off uh, a debt he owed for grand theft. The grand theft was for <laughs> Graham Parsons. I know. Grand theft Parsons. Grand theft Parsons. It was for paying off the coffin. Well, oh, really? I thought if he was in big trouble with the law as well, and he was paying off his jail, his fees for... For that, too, right? He was, but basically but was, what they got him on oh, was grand theft. And it was the coffin? For a $2,000 coffin in 1973 so, or whenever so that So that's was. all they could get him on, really, because there was no rules about taking a body? Initially. <gasps> huh. I, I didn't follow every word of it, but it is a bizarre story. I know, and a sad story, because he was my friend. Yeah, you know? I understand, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, you know, there's... There's always a few sides to a story, and the way that story goes, they had a a vow to each other that whichever would go first, the other would, would make sure make, they were yep. brought out to their favorite place, yes. Joshua, Joshua Tree. Tree. <laughs> anyway, that long, sordid tale is a part of my story in a funny way, because there know. I was at that party yeah. raising money to pay off his legal bills. There was Dr. Demento. Yep. The Modern Lovers, Bobby Boris Pickett doing the Monster Mash. With with the gravestones. I remember it. How, how did you just had fake gravestones on the stage, right? Yeah, we did. <laughs> and and funny enough, the the name of Bobby Pickett's band was the Crypt Kicker Five. So yes. it was a little bit on point. <laughs> I know. And we all I had know. ghoul it, makeup on. So it was very it, strange. It, it was very eerie and weird that he would hire... Bobby Boris Pickett, but he had a great sense of humor, and and so did Graham, and I'm sure Graham was okay with it. <laughs> I think Graham would have had a laugh yes, over I it. Yes, I do too. I but do I remember too. pulling up to to um, Phil Kaufman's house, and uh, I'd seen it used in some photographs before. If, if you loved rock and roll in the late 60s, early 70s, you couldn't miss this old ranch house yeah, with, with a big flying eagle, flying A. Exactly. Uh, eagles on each side of the door, all this crazy neon signs, and there was a hearst in the front. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was the hearst. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> it was on Chandler. Yeah, on Chandler, sure I enough, right by the so tracks. Well. Yeah. Well, we set up in the back, and we played our set, and I didn't know much about why we were there or what it was. I, You know, I was just a kid. I, I was know, 17 or something. Oh, my gosh. And uh, I was introduced to Phil Kaufman. And uh, he thanked me, and he was funny, and he was wearing a 
crunched up old cowboy hat and it was a crusty guy yes. with a handlebar <laughs> yes. mustache with a twirl on it and a bunch of very old tattoos. And I thought, this is a character. This guy <laughs> is like some kind of cartoon. And he was a Korean War vet and a fascinating guy. Amazingly and, still with us. And he's still with us. Incredible with the life he's had. Yeah, and, and the motorcycle accidents oh, he's had. It's and incredible. He, he's still working with Emmy Lou, I believe. Yeah. I mean, it's really incredible. Mm. Yeah, so we played the party. <laughs> I was hanging out with Phil and... Uh, it was great fun, and Phil kind of took a liking to me. He oh. just lost his best buddy, Graham, yes. and he kind of took me in. Did he? Phil took me in and uh, introduced me to another guy that led to a, a year-long contract with a guy from Cleveland yeah. You know, in his band, my first real paid salaried musician gig. And, and I was, what was that band? That was called the Gary Dixon Band huh. with some other guys who had also played with Graham. In the band that Phil had put together. Okay. And we rehearsed out at that Valley House, yeah. Phil's house. Wow. Sometime soon after that, after it was clear that Gary's career wasn't going to really take off, um, Phil once said, why don't you stay over? We were up drinking and doing illicit drugs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he said, oh, yeah. Why don't you stay over in the guest house, and in the morning I'm going up to uh, Etta James' rehearsal. Well, he was also Etta James's road manager. And I said, I'd love to. He said, well, I don't think the guitar player is going to be able to make it, so you got your guitar here. Why don't you just bring it? Who knows? Maybe you can play. I did. Ooh. Got his equipment fan, went up to John Densmore's house in the Hollywood Hills. What a thrill for you as a kid. And, you know, I was 18 years yeah. old and just out at, you know, high school. Yeah. And um, here comes Etta James, you know, with her incredible band, who Phil had taken me to the Troubadour to see live with Greg Almond and um, and uh, all these great players, Billy Payne from Little Feet and the band, mm. this incredible band. Yeah. And she was coming back to repair a career that she had screwed up because she was a junkie. Yeah, yep. And now she was just getting out of uh, treatment uh, and she was trying to start her career up again and win and back some boy, of the promotion. Boy, did she ever. She did. Wow. Another entire life of amazing music. Right. And you were there for all of it, right? Most of it. I mean, well, an awful lot of it. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, that day at the rehearsal, introduced to her, started playing with the band. And I'm a greenhorn. I, I have very little right to be there just in terms of experience and age because these yeah. guys were seasoned, great players. Yet she said at the end of it, I like that little white kid <laughs> to Phil. Yeah. And and Phil said she'd like you to come and play with her tomorrow night in Long Beach at a gig. Just and I'm wow. like, shit, I was 18 and you know with a bullet and yeah. uh, just <laughs> yeah. so excited. And uh, did your parents come? Did you? No, 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 no. This was my first solo foray as oh, okay. a hired gun with Etta James, and that went off well. Mm -hmm. And I didn't hear from her for a few months, and I thought, oh well, that. Least I got to do that. Yeah. And then one evening at about seven o'clock, she goes, she calls me. Yeah. Brian, it's Etta. Etta, what are you doing? She says, I'm up in Ventura County. I go on an hour. Can you get up here? And I said, Yeah, I'm on my way. I loaded up my <laughs> Les Paul and threw my amp in the back of my car and 
rolled up the highway, plugged in, and that began, uh, you know, 15 years of being her musical director that, and guitar player. At that incredibly young age, my yeah. God. You must have learned so much, too, from her band members as well, right? Yeah, just just by soaking it in. Yeah, that's The what experience I mean. of the yeah. way she... The way she did her shows, it was just sort of like she'd call out songs that would occur to her. She didn't have a set list. You know, she would add a second solo or a bridge. That's the middle of a song that goes somewhere else for you who don't know that. Uh, She would just call things out. And as her musical director, as this new entrusted kid, uh, it would be my job to turn around to the band and tell them whatever she just yelled at me. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's a train wreck, but usually it would go off without a hitch and we would just be, um, you know, in in a musical euphoria. She was so great on stage and so exciting as a performer. So present, so present, right? So So awake and there, and uh, right? That's that's the only way she could do it the way you just described. But then you had to be so awake and aware yourself. Yeah. Wow. Magnificent creature, Etta James. And yeah. um, one of the first things she would do at any given gig would be to kick off her shoes. Yeah. So <laughs> that's what she does to start her show. She gets in her bare feet wow. and starts stalking the stage and zeroing in on her audience. Mm-hmm. And as you said so well, she was just so present. Yeah. So that's a great, great way to put mm-hmm. it. Well, great artists are usually right there, right there every minute. So, I mean, at least yeah. that's what I've noticed. <laughs> yeah, that's uh-huh. that's a great distinction. Yeah, not doing a show. Yeah, she's just in it, interacting too, right? Yeah, including. Yeah, right. Well, that's an amazing fifteen-year journey there. Yeah, that was a a great start. And you know, she was, um, as I said, rebuilding a career, so she couldn't keep up a a perfect. Uh, gigging schedule she couldn't get booked that often because she'd burned a few bridges yeah she'd burned a few promoters <laughs> yeah. and yeah uh, they, not showing up huh yeah mm-hmm. they needed to uh trust her again and so there was that time there where she would allow me to play with other people and mm-hmm. i was fortunate enough to be able to join a couple of other bands and still work for her right uh and during one tour i was doing with a band called the reggie Knighton band um that Cavallo and Ruffalo managed. Uh, I was out on tour with uh, 10CC, opening for 10CC with Reggie. Great, great little band, great time. And this is around 77, and I get a call from Ed. I said, Brian, you got to come home, man. I'm going to open for the Rolling Stones. (laughs) (coughs) And yeah, yeah, I did hurry home. Wow. Yeah, that was the next sort of big step with Ada uh, during the Some Girls album uh-huh. tour. And the first gig I did with them was at the Fox Theater in Detroit. You know, maybe maybe 1,200 people there in an old Rococo theater with red velvet seats, you know, a small theater. Just a magnificent yeah. sound. Wow. So and you, did you get to hang out with the Stones? Yeah, a bit. I remember being on stage, and I was just like Etta. I was so in it, and it was so intoxicating. Yeah. Okay? I was a huge Stones freak, and I was obviously a huge Beatles freak. Yes. Uh, but, you know, here we are in this 
little theater, and I look over to my left, just glance over and did a double take, because there, like a cartoon, are all of the stones, one head over the other, uh, in the curtains watching us play. And uh, what a they just moment! Had these these big smiles on their faces, and um, it was exciting, as exciting for them. Yeah, as it was sure, for me. because they're big fans too yeah. of, of all all their music. But who are some of your heroes early on? I, the Beatles and the Stones, but who else? Who inspired you well, musically back then? You know, going back before those opportunities I just talked about. You know, again, it was my sister and her husband Jim. They had this folk rock duet called Jim and Jean. Fantastic. And they were placed right in there in this time where they were playing traditional folk. Yeah. They were in the new Christie Minstrels or whatever that band was. Yeah. And then that turned into a solo deal. Okay. Very, very traditional folk, like 12 string with finger picks playing really big 12 string guitar. He was, Jim. Mm-hmm. And she would play uh, acoustic guitar and sometimes finger cymbals. And <gasps> later on, they started going electric. And I came over once and He's playing a, a Hofner six-string Beatle bass guitar, and she's got a Hofner Beatle bass bass. Wow! And uh, and in the band was Al Cooper and Harvey Brooks, uh, you know, who famously played with Bob Dylan during mm-hmm. the Highway 61 period and Blonde. Oh, Blonde. Bob. Yeah, and um, <laughs> so that you know that's early '60s, and yeah. the, I used to go to their gigs at sort of the Ice House and yeah. the Ash Grove uh-huh. and the Troubadour and the Cellar Door and the Gaslight in New York and Chicago and you know uh, what was that called King Tut's in Chicago or something? Oh, like that. I don't know that one. But anyway, it, that's where I really cut my teeth is in the coffee houses of the mm. early '60s. And in those days, of course, the bills would include people like, you know, Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee and Jim and Jean, or yeah. Taj Mahal, Taj Mahal and Jim and Jean, yeah. or Albert King, you know. And so meeting some of these guys like Albert King at age 12 was a little bit of a buzz, you know. And I'll bet. Yeah, I was sort of, yeah, I was getting very uh, educated by just that tradition of mixing and matching genres of music you know yeah were you a lyric whore like myself you know as with many <laughs> guys i would you know pay attention to the hook okay but i never huh. uh That's I, interesting. I never really tuned into lyrics until i became a songwriter mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and i did write some songs as a kid you know i had a sort of a feel for it and a knack for it and got my first two-track tape recording machine and would bounce tracks back and forth and start overdubbing, you know, like, but um, not until I became a songwriter, seriously, did I pay attention to lyrics. It was more about guitar, the riff, the sound, the voice, Mm -hmm. the sound of the voice, the sound of the record, the drums. It was the whole picture, you know. (laughs) Well, why don't you play us a song? Oh, yeah? Okay. I just happen to have a nice old guitar here. Oh, it's a beauty. For those of you out in podcast land, (laughs) it's a 1963 Gibson Dove, but it's not just a dove, it's a it's a humming dove. So Mm. it's there's two different models, and this is a perfect mixture of those two different models, and I just the one that I grabbed today. Okay, good. But maybe I could play for you um, 
just a little quick version of my new single called Pirate Radio. Okay. Yeah? Yeah, I okay. love it. Goes a little like this. Okay. When I was a young boy, I got a new toy, a transistor radio. I was good to go. From the downbeat of my youth, I was searching for the sound of truth, and it found me. Yes, it found me. That's your latest release. That's my latest release. When can people get a hold of that? Well, actually, there's a vinyl single right now available at Wicked Cool Records. Great. Uh, And the distribution company is The Orchard. Uh, 
It'll be on my website very, very soon, as a matter of fact, which is obviously brianray.com. <laughs> a little Good. shameless plug. <laughs> oh, no, that's perfect. But, and uh, it's the coolest song in the world. Yeah. The 11th time. Wow, yeah, that's, I think it is my 11th That's insane. Song now, that's, that's Stephen Van Zandt's um, show on XM. Yeah, And Sirius he chooses mm-hmm. the coolest song in the world, what, every week or every month? Every week. Every yeah. week, okay. Mm-hmm. 11 times, that's amazing. Yeah. My ex-husband's had a few of those. He has indeed. He had one just recently, right before yeah. mine, as a matter yeah. of fact. Crackle and, and Hiss, very Crackle cool little hiss. song. It's really cool. It's similar to yours in that... You know, the love of music and where it all started and everything. That's right? so true. Yeah. 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 So how many bands were you in with him? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Michael, don't we love it? What a yes. great career he's landed upon. His yes. sort of multifaceted uh, career now as uh, a DJ and a very good DJ. Yeah. Very successful um, one. It's fantastic. You never know what's going to happen in life. You never know. You just know. never know. You never and know. And let's lead into that. Okay. <laughs> What were you doing when you got that all-important call about, what, 15 years ago? Gosh, it's uh, over 17 17. years ago now. Okay. Well, let's hear about that. Right. So I was, uh, you know, I've been with Paul McCartney now for 17 years recording and touring with him all over the world. Well, thank you, Pamela. Yes. It's uh you know, an amazing um, turn of events. You know, it's a life-changing thing. It's not a gig. It's much more than a gig. Yes. It's it's like, I can't even describe it. It's, obviously, it's about as good as a guy like me can do. Absolutely. Right? So what what was that initial moment like? I mean, people, m- most people don't get to have this kind of experience in life. So let's hear what it was like emotionally, you know, what did it feel like and all that? Well, the very first time I met Paul, it was, I'll set it up just a little bit. Okay. I had been working in France with uh, Johnny Halliday. Fantastic. You know, yeah, of course. Fantastic French Elvis. Yes. Famous. Icon. Like you can imagine. When he passed, there were a million people along the road uh, to, to pay homage to him down the Champs-Élysées in, in Paris, France. Every it was an all-day television uh, special on, oh, on, you know, and ending at uh, the Place Madeleine where they did a beautiful service. Uh, but uh, that's the kind of love and adoration that man had garnered, yeah. you know. Famous nowhere else but in yeah. French-speaking. Well, uh, I know who he is. Yeah? Oh, yeah. He'd go to Montreal and he'd be famous there. Yeah. <laughs> but not in New York City. Okay. And he was a curiosity to mm-hmm. sure. uh, those of us in the USA. Anyway, I, I got a job with him uh, in the late 90s. Mm-hmm. And the drummer who also got that audition was, uh, won that audition, was Abe Laboreal Jr., who happens to be the drummer for Paul McCartney now with me. Uh-huh. He and I became fast friends, and we'd do stuff together. We'd go shopping, and we'd go to see movies, and go you know, eat junk food and do whatever we did all over <laughs> France and every town in Hamlet, you know. Yeah. And in fact, we were in two different French bands, also with Milan Farmer. Um, but there was one tour where Abe called and said, I'm not going to be doing the next Johnny tour. And I go, why? Oh, man, I'll miss you. He goes, well, I just got a call to uh, to play on Paul McCartney's new album. And I said, what? 
I got to get back to town just to shake your hand. Yeah. And I said, oh, my God, that's so exciting. I'm so happy for you. And they were doing a, a record called uh, Driving Rain. Right. In 2001. Mm-hmm. When I did get back to town, uh, happened to have a birthday party, and he came with his lovely girlfriend, Suzanne, and some friends of mine. And just as casual conversation, I said, are, are you guys going to get ready to tour sometime? I mean, now you've done this exciting album. Now I've heard the album. It's yeah. great. Uh-huh. And he said, yeah, it looks like we're doing, you know, try some dates out, maybe in March or April. And I said, I just in that moment, raised my hand and said, well, I said, who's going to play guitar when he's playing bass and then switch to bass when he's playing guitar? And he says, we're looking for a guitar player who plays a bit of bass. And I shot my right hand up. I said, I'd love a shot at that. That's exactly what I said. And he goes, oh, that's cool. That'd be a good idea. Well, I'll put your name forward. And, uh, you know, I didn't work it hard or anything like that. I just simply said that. Yeah. I got a call like a day or two later from Paul's producer, the great David Kahn. And um, David said, would you come down to meet me uh, in a half hour at my studio here at Henson in over yeah. off yeah. La Brea? Yeah, and I said, I can get there in an hour. Would that be okay? And he goes, sure. So mm-hmm. I got over there. Truth was, I was too nervous to get there right now. <laughs> I needed to get my head together. Yeah. And I knew Paul wasn't going to be there, but just the same, it it felt like a really big deal. So it was a big deal. Doing some deep breathing and getting my head around it. But uh, I got in my car and went down to Henson, went and hung out with them. He handed me a guitar to play while we talked, not even plugged in, just a Telecaster on his couch, you know, and played that for a little while. And then he handed me a bass. And still, we're just talking. He's not really listening. I'm not auditioning. Yeah. He's just watching my hands yeah. and watching my manner yeah. and talking with me. Right. At the end of 40 minutes, he goes, well, you know, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, they're going to try out about four guys, and but I have a good feeling about this. I'll, I'll put your name for it and just see what happens. And I go, well, thank you very much. What, what, a, what a treat this has been. And moved on. I got a call the next morning saying... Can you be on a plane tomorrow to go to New Orleans to do one song with Paul McCartney for the Super Bowl? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Can you imagine? No, I can't even imagine that. That is like beyond my comprehension. So my answer was, <laughs> let me look at my schedule. No. So, of course, I go there and uh, I had a nice like sit down in front of a fireplace at a hotel there with Paul's inner core, like his his right-hand man, his personal assistant, and yeah. his travel guy and consigliere and and his uh, tech, just these three guys I'd just met for the first time. And it was very relaxed and very nice. And I felt uh-huh. I felt liked and, you know, I liked them. And the next day I was going to meet Paul. and <sighs> But not until about four o'clock in the afternoon. And as the day started, I was like, <laughs> At, at my at, at our yes. general age, yes, yes. it's a, almost too much yes. because <laughs> the Beatles were like superheroes. Oh, they were like gods. gods. And so yes. it's not like for somebody from the 90s go, oh, God, I got to meet Paul McCartney at yeah, a restaurant. That guy like, in wings. Yeah. Oh, wow. But <laughs> for me, it was a big deal. Yes. So I felt like, well, what am I going to do? I'm going to walk around New Orleans for two hours to try to burn off some of this extra energy. Yeah. 
in hopes that I could beautiful spot. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And it didn't work. I was still as nervous as I could be when I got back. (laughs) And he was having a a little private dinner for us in, in a, in a sort of a ballroom of this beautiful hotel. And I remember it being in there and having drinks and talking to the band guys. Yeah. Uh, some of whom, most of whom I knew, oh, except good. for one. Uh-huh. And uh, Paul's inner circle. And then the energy just changed in the room. And I was facing the other way from the door. And I could tell he had just walked in. How is and, that possible? It, it's true, though. Something lifts. Yeah. I've had that experience with people. Yeah, he's, he has a vibe. What can you say, man? There's, there's an electricity around him. Yeah. He's got yeah. his own little orbit, you yeah. know, his own yeah. solar system going yes. on. <laughs> you just feel like everything sort of realigns. But anyway, yeah. not to romanticize it too much, but I was really nervous. But uh, he came around the corner, and I turned around, and here he comes, and he puts out his hand and goes, Hi, you must be Brian. I'm Paul. <laughs> and, really? It just sort of took a bunch of the heat and the steam off of it. And now we were just chatting, you know, guy to guy. And there was his wife at the time, Heather. Mm -hmm. And we had some chat, very light stuff. And uh, we sat down at a lovely dinner. And at one point, he he stood up to thank everybody and to toast everyone that was there. Some old faces and some new faces like Brian and David and... Uh-huh. And welcome, and uh, you know, you know that's the beginning. And the next day was our first rehearsal to play one song. One song. Which uh, one was it? It was a, a song called "Freedom." Okay. Yeah. That he wrote on the tarmac on nine eleven oh, when okay. his plane was held back because of what had just oh, happened. Oh my gosh! Yeah. And so that's the timing. That's mm. the time frame of that. Right. Right. Um, and you have to keep in mind that the Super Bowl was only four months later. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, wow, We're true. In February 6th or 9th wow, or whatever it yeah. was. And uh, yeah, kind of a big deal. And we played that one song and then we go up into the box seats that we had reserved for us and we're watching the rest of this great Super Bowl game. Yeah. It's now done, you know. Yeah. My blood pressure <laughs> right. had gone back to <laughs> yeah. human and uh-huh. you know, I stopped like palpitating and Anyway, we're watching the games, and I'm hanging out, and then his backline tech guy, Keith, lovely guy, sits down by me and starts asking me about my gear, my my live touring gear. And I thought, oh, my God. In the back of my mind, going, he's like, he's looking into this yes. for a possible— He's scoping you out. Cause just because I was there to play one song didn't guarantee that I right. was going to be the guy on tour. It was just a gig, one thing. yes. Anyway, I took a little note of that, answered his questions, and when the game was just about over, we're in the fourth quarter, yeah, and Paul's a couple rows behind me and sitting there with Heather, and I thought, well, for all I know, this is going to be the last I ever see him, mm-hmm. so I'd like to go and thank him and say goodbye, because we're going to be whisked out of here soon, for yeah, sure, yeah, with uh, a security detail as it was, you know. The president at the time was also there. So. Wow. Okay. And um, <clears throat> so there I was, and I decided to make a move up to Paul, and I put out my hand to shake his hand, and I said, I just I don't know if I'll be able to see you again. I just want to thank you for this amazing opportunity. It's been a, a real privilege and a gas for me, yeah. and realize I'm still holding on to his hand. Oh. <laughs> like, a minute later, 
And he's being very tolerant, very <laughs> nice, and I remove my hand. And, uh, and you know, he thanked me back, and it was that simple. And I really did think this was probably, you know, it. And then, uh, and then we're saying goodbye, and he goes, okay, see you back at the hotel. And I go, okay. We go to the bar. <gasps> I walk in the bar, and he's entertaining everyone in the bar playing Lady Madonna oh, on a Lord. little upright piano because <laughs> oh. he, too, is a ham. Yes. And uh, sure. lovely guy, and yeah. people are just loving it. And there's, you know, 30 people in a bar. And <sighs> our little crew is sitting around a table, and he's telling stories and uh, talking about a, a Broadway play he'd just seen and this and that. And at a certain point, he gets up and he goes, Well, it's, I'm going to go and get some rest. See you guys later. And he starts saying goodbye, stands up, gives everyone a hug, comes up to me, and he said, Okay, Brian, well, welcome aboard. Stick with Abe and Rusty. They'll show you the ropes. They'll see you in about six weeks. And I turned to Abe and I said, did he just say what I think he said? And he goes, yeah, dude. And I oh my gosh. flew home with the biggest smile oh, on my face. I can't even imagine. And, and well, I mean, Pamela, I had to, you know, prepare for this. It was a lot for me. Like yeah. I'd been doing a lot of touring for many years already and. But this was a, a whole another level. And yeah. I was thinking to myself, like, am I good enough to play with Paul McCartney? I mean, this is this is heavy. He wants me to sing on every song yeah. and play be ready for guitar, lead guitar, rhythm guitar, twelve string guitar, yeah. bass, whatever he throws at me. <laughs> yeah. There was no set list. I'm about to get ready to go rehearse for a tour. Yeah. And I have five weeks to do so. <laughs> And I set up in my second bedroom at my house in West Hollywood area, mm-hmm. a microphone, a bass, a guitar, a 12-string, an acoustic, and a stack of CDs, because that's what we used then, Yes, and a CD player all within reach. And yeah. I just said, I didn't have a set list or a show list so or anything. So you just had to do them all. <laughs> I just started digging into everything. I got every Paul Wings and Beatles record that I could get my hands on. I had a big stack of them and just started going through it, you know, and learning whatever jumped out to me. Like, okay, I'm going to learn bass and guitar on this one. I'll learn the solo on this one. Oh my gosh, what a job. I'll pick out a vocal harmony and, you know, learn a new one later if I have to. And then I remember a first week going like, ah, this is just too much. I'm not sure I could do this. And then the second week, oh, it's better. And then the third week I said, I'm going to have Abe come over here and just hang out with me and kind of listen and give me some pointers because now he's worked with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, Abe came over and uh, and he said, sounds good, man. You're fine. You know, sounds great. <laughs> and by the fourth week, I said, well, I'm going to go and get this. I'm going to do this. And I walked into the first day of rehearsal in Culver City and I was so nervous, but I was already familiar with the the crew and the sound crew, meeting a few extra new people. Yeah. Set up my gear. I remember that first day getting my mic stand, which was right in the front plane along with Paul and Jeez. the other front mic stand yeah. that Rusty uses. Yep. And they're not, Paul's isn't two feet in front of it. They're all in the same row. <laughs> and I looked at that and I just started going, <laughs> I grabbed my mic stand and started like walking backwards. And Keith... <laughs> Keith, the aforementioned uh, stage manager, says, what are you doing? I said, oh, I just thought I'd be probably more comfortable if I just got out of the way a little bit and just go back. He goes, no, no, no. You get up there. 
And I went, okay, God. And Paul wasn't here yet. And we had five days of uh, rehearsing mm-hmm. before Paul even joined us, which right. was a great advantage. Yeah, and yeah. Wix Wickens, the keyboard player and uh, and band leader, had been there before. And so he was. He knew where all the bones were and started showing us uh, how Paul likes it. And we chipped away at, uh, learned about 45 songs in five days. And then Paul walks in. <laughs> We played, I think Hello Goodbye was the first thing we played. <laughs> and and uh, a few adjustments, and he was enjoying himself. And it was a little bit comforting that he wasn't a whole ton more prepared than we were. He, right. It had been a while for him since he had last toured. Mm-hmm. So I still don't know what's coming next. I mean, I'm doing my best, and you know, hanging in there and keeping up with my buddies. And and I didn't see anybody running around on their cell phone, you know, panicking to call someone else. So I thought, okay, it's going okay so far. But, I mean, there's always the next song. Something awful yes. could happen. I, I don't know. And uh, at the end of the first day of rehearsal, Paul goes, okay, guys, that'll do it for today. Sounds great. See you tomorrow. Oh, what a relief and, and a thrill. And it wasn't until that moment that I – you know, digested the fact that I was probably going on tour with Paul McCartney. And it was a six-week tour. Wow. And he didn't know if he wanted to continue touring. It was just sort of get his feet wet again. It had been a decade since he'd toured. Oh, you know, 10 years. His his previous wife, Linda, as you know, was was ill, and he Mm. cared for her. Yes, yes. And uh, then he cared for George. And Mm. uh, so... He had gone through a lot of loss, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he didn't know if this was something he felt like doing. He certainly didn't have to do anymore. No. <laughs> and, uh, anyway. It 17 was years the, later. At the end, yeah. yeah. 17 he years to, in the blink of an eye, you know. It's just so incredible. You know, because of you, I he was my, and is my favorite Beatle, of course. He's, uh, my whole stories and I'm with the band about him are so silly. I was just the perfect age, Beatlemania, right? So because of you, I got to meet him. You invited us to one of his gigs, which was thrilling. And he was with Heather at the time. And I was backstage. Oh, I remember. Michael and I were on our way home from the gig. And you called him in the car and said, come to a party with Paul. And we were just like. (laughs) You were on the way home from the gig, right, at Staples Center. And we were having a party up at (laughs) uh, the Four Seasons. Yes. And you you invited us. Get over here. Yeah. So, okay, I was beside myself. Maybe I'm finally going to meet Paul after all these decades. I've got to preface this a little bit. I had all these rituals I had to do so I could meet Paul back in 1964. Oh, nice. I love it. Oh, incredible amount of rituals. Let's hear this. Well, I had to have a sweet tart dissolve in my mouth as I fell asleep thinking about him. I, I had to kiss his picture every night before I went to bed. I had to listen to the Beatles music. Before sleeping, and if the dog barked, I had to get up and start over and play it. Play it on my little record player. I mean, it was rituals. But the the shocking one was, every time I farted, I had to write his name down, <laughs> or I wasn't going to meet him. No, okay. no, that's embarrassing. Come on, it's embarrassing. I still have the list. I still have the list. Unbelievable! <laughs> it's like you were so OCD super fan. <laughs> I was beyond belief. So anyway, that night. Um, just like you described, you know, we we're all milling around and everything. And all of a sudden, the air changed, right? He walked in. And I could not approach him. 
You were all the way across the room engaged with some other people, and I just just stood there. And some stranger came up to me and said, have you met Paul? And I went, no, no. And he dragged me over there. No, but I just farted. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah! (laughs) Correct! I'm sorry. You (laughs) You can edit that out. No, it's perfect. So he dragged me over there. And I had brought I'm with the band in hardback to give him, you know, as a gift, and just in case I met him. So this guy introduced us, and he looked at me with those freaking eyebrows and said, we haven't met before, have we? Like, you know, he did. It was because Heather was there. And I said, oh. oh. I said, no. It, <laughs> that no, is so smart. I know. What a yes. great way <laughs> to diffuse yeah. that one. Yeah. And I said. Just in case you had. Exactly. Because he was very naughty in his days. So and anyway. he's trying to make sure that if you had, quote, yes, unquote, to be, met. To say. That you were going to say. <laughs> I was, was going like, to be cool. It's like the mobster saying, hey, you didn't see anything, <laughs> did you? Exactly. That was it. But those eyebrows lifted up. Those eyebrows, oh, my God. So I said, no, unfortunately, like George Harrison in the movie. And he opened the book, and he looked through it, you know, and he was very pleasant. But he looked over at Heather at one point and said, see, dear, we've never met. I mean, it was like that. It was funny. But anyway, I met him, thanks to you. And then you got us tickets for Desert Trip. Me and my son, Nick. I'll never forget it, Brian. You've been so kind. Oh, Pamela, it was such a meaningful thing. Both of those events are meaningful to me as well. I'm (sighs) happy to have been some part of this uh, huge dream since you were a young girl. I didn't know all of that stuff for (laughs) your cute rituals. I, too, love sweet tarts, so I know know how you felt (laughs) about that. They had just come out when I started eating them. I remember, in a little foil packet. And the way they melted in your mouth was something... Anyway. Yeah. I like the cherry ones best. The cherry and the grape ones. Those oh, were my I love favorites. the cherry and the lime were my favorites. Mm, yeah. I see. So anyway, thank you for that. How about Desert Trip? Were you backstage meeting Dylan and all those people? I mean, it was insane. What an insane, you know, that'll never be repeated again. Well, I don't think it would. I, I mean, No way. I mean, that was some sort of magical convergence, you know, planetary-wise, right? Yeah. I mean, to have all you guys playing together yeah what a bill i mean for those of you who who heard about it but don't remember the bill was this it was bob dylan opening for the rolling stones yes. then the next night it was neil young opening for paul mccartney yeah. then the yeah. next night it was the who opening for roger waters i mean what what a gig a bill what an incredible my son never got over it he wept all the way through it and he sang every single Paul Lyric with you. <laughs> amazing. I know. And you got us such amazing seats, too. Oh, that's so amazing. Well, what a night that was. Well, what a weekend that was. And then we got to do it twice, you know. Yeah. But yeah. Um, it was, it was, it meant a lot to me to, to I hadn't met Nick. And so mm-hmm. I had only heard about him and I knew that he was, you know, going through stuff and, yeah. and he was, so smart and so accomplished and was getting all these opportunities. And I knew I had seen him online a bit, you know, maybe it was on Instagram. And I remember just reaching out to him a couple, a couple of times. And, and I, I think I, uh, messaged him and said that's how that happened would that's you right. like to come to see us i would love to make that happen for you that's right 
right. It and, was him uh, you reached out to. Yeah, yeah. There, I only had two, so I could only get the two of you. I know. That was so well, Michael kind. had to stay home. But I know. <laughs> it, you know, I wanted you guys to be there. And then I got to see you in the little backstage area. I know. You got us area backstage and, area, the hip people. We got free food and drinks. <laughs> it was a vibe, wasn't it? it? Was. Oh, my God. Never to be repeated. No, I mean, incredible. What an event. Yeah. And everyone... Uh, did their best shows and it was yes. oh everybody was on the same page all these six great acts to do sort of their hits yeah and that this isn't a time to pleasing do the new the album pleasing the audience pleasing the audience it was so incredible yeah this is an audience so we could pleaser. all sing along and everything it was yeah. divine yeah what a what a thing yeah i'm so glad you made it to that yes well let's hear more about your your new record your new band and all that okay yeah well um so I've been doing uh, my solo material for a couple of years now uh, for Wicked Cool Records. Mm-hmm. I've been writing since, you know, since I was a kid. and uh, But this is the first time I've had a solo record deal. Yeah. And uh, Wicked Cool Records is, uh, for those of you who don't know, it's Little Steven, Miami Steven Van Zandt. Yes. Uh, that's his record label. Mm-hmm. And as you had said previously, he has his own radio station on Sirius XM uh, Channel 21, on which Michael DeBar, your lovely ex, is uh, yes. a great DJ. Uh-huh. Anyway, uh, Stephen, I guess, discovered me because of his wife, Marine Van Zandt. Okay. Yeah, and she's I a was music release- lover, too. I was releasing a single years ago as a part of a band with Oliver Lieber mm-hmm. that we had together called the Bayonets. Right. So we were doing these, you know, self, self-released, self you know, singles one at a time. Every eight weeks we were going to turn out a new single. We only had six songs. Uh-huh. And the first release was called Sucker for Love. Oh. And that was to be released on Valentine's Day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Perfect. And uh, we put it out, and just a little email went out. No big push. I didn't have a press team or anything like that. And then within that, I posted about it on Twitter, and I get a like from Maureen Van Zandt mm. and uh, Steve's, Stephen's lovely wife. And apparently she loved it, and then she went and told Stephen about it. So he knew about it late that night uh-huh. and emailed me the next day saying, what the hell is this? Where can I get some more? Uh-huh. How much have you done? What is this? Uh-huh. What a great vocal. I want to make this the coolest song in the world. Who are you guys? <laughs> Let me do a radio edit. You can use it or not. I, you're Stick with me. I'm going to do something with you guys. And it was just like this crazy email. And um, of course, I was... Over the moon. Another thrilling moment for you. Yeah, and uh, he put that uh, on the radio. It wasn't on his label or anything. And I think that led to seven songs by the Bayonets being coolest song. Uh Uh, But what happened was at the end of that, uh, Oliver and I kind of parted ways. We got busy with other stuff, and we felt like we had done a lot. Yeah. And we'd worked one album for four years, so that was enough. And... uh, Stephen and his producer, uh, Dennis Mortensen, approached me and just said, would you like uh, to do a solo uh, project and we'll give you a record deal here at Wicked Cool, <laughs> like a singles deal? And I did. And here I am on, I guess, my third 
single for uh-huh. Wicked Cool. And the new single is, as you just heard, Pirate Radio. It's so good, too. It reminds me too of I when I was in junior high and early high school I my transistor was like attached to my ear just do like you, you described. Do you remember what the first song you tuned in and listened to on your I I remember mine no, but I'm just one I don't. Mine was Zippity Doodah by Blue Jean and the Bobby <laughs> oh, Sox. Wow, when you got your very first transistor? Yeah, that's I wish one, I remembered that. That's the first that. one I remember. That yeah. doesn't mean it's yeah. the first thing it was. Well, just for, the first one walking down now Music is mobile, which yeah, everyone's yeah. used to now, of Yeah, course. but that was magic, wasn't it, when it became mobile like that? It was a new thing. Yeah. And I just remember feeling that song, walking down the street by <laughs> Brand Park in Glendale, and I'm feeling very zippity-doo-dah. <laughs> but, you know, it was on that radio that I discovered, uh, pirate radio. Yeah, yeah. Blasting out of Tijuana, Mexico with 150,000 watts of power, and this <sighs> insane personality coming on. Ow! Yeah. And, yes. <laughs> and talking like this, and yeah. it was the Wolfman. And yeah. uh, very I important nev- guy, man. Very important. Changed so many people's lives. Right? No doubt about yeah. it. Yeah, because a lot of people in small towns and stuff, they could not hear even their local radios, though, right? Isn't right. Isn't that how they? I never had to listen to that because I was right in the middle of everything. But isn't that how it worked? Yeah. Pirate radio. Yeah, it was only uh, in in his case only at night. Mm-hmm. There were other pirate radio stations all around the world. There was Radio Caroline and uh, radio, uh, many others. And that was off of a ship off the I coast of England. I was just going to say, where they, right? they were in boats somewhere, yeah. right? Yeah. So it's and, an amazing story. And they were trying to beat, you know, they were trying to shut them down because. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pirates. They're true yeah. pirates. Yes. That's <laughs> they how they got pirates. the name because they yeah. were on a ship. But this was a, by day, it was a Mexican evangelist channel, uh-huh. you know. XERB. Wow. And uh, and by night it was Wolfman. And you know, he would interrupt songs and just start talking like this one goes out to a prisoner in Leverworth. You know, he would just start talking about prisoners and you know, uh, little dedications between a couple. It was just yeah. lovely stuff and very intoxicating. Yeah. Well, why don't we hear another one of your songs now? Let, let's play Trash Man. Yeah. 
was so awesome, that song. Tell me about it. Thank you so much. Yes, Trash Man. Yeah. That's uh, by uh, myself and Steve Conte. Steve Conte uh, is a fantastic guitar player, singer, songwriter from New York. And he's also on Wicked Cool Records. And we met up uh, during a Paul gig, and he was my guest at uh, another Paul gig in Long Island, I think. And we just hung out, got to know each other, kind of clicked. I said, man, we should do something sometime. Well, three or four years go by, and I yeah. finally did something. Uh-huh. I, I had a little song start, and I reached out to him, and I said, it's time to do that thing that we were going to do. Do you want to do a co-write? And he goes, yeah. I said, well, I have a song start. Do you have any starts laying around that you'd like to sort of merge? He goes, yeah, I got this one. It's called Trash Man. I go, oh, that's such a great title. (laughs) And it's a great sort of, you know, kind of fun lyric about uh, it's, you know, obviously sexual innuendo, but a guy who's there to help a woman with all of her needs and, uh, you know, emotional and otherwise. (laughs) And he's the trash man going to take out the trash and get rid of the old stuff and in with Uh, the new. uh And it's just a lovely idea. And I had a song start and we basically melded two ideas into one. And that's it. Trash man. Great. Is there anything else you'd like to play while you're here? Yeah, let's see here. Well, thanks so much, Pamela. How about a song off of my first solo album? This is way before the Wicked Cool Days. Okay. It's just self-released album called Mondo Magneto. Right. And it's a song called All I Know. Okay, cool. Let's hear it.
been so much fun. Thank you so much, Pamela. It's been a big pleasure for me. Oh, goody. I'm so happy just to see you. I'm happy to see you, too. Mm -hmm. We don't get to do it enough. I know. We're both crazy busy people. But I got this fabulous hour with you, and I'm very grateful. Well, I'm very grateful to be here with you. Don't you have a birthday coming up? I just had a birthday, but I'm having a big party Sunday. You have parties fairly often, don't you? Yeah, I like to have bands play. Yeah. Yeah. And who's playing this time? Uh, Minibar. Ooh, They're a love British them. band. Yeah, they're amazing British boys, that fantastic singer-songwriters. And I know they'd be thrilled to have you there. If you can come, that would be awesome. You know what? I'd love chick. that. I'd yeah? love that. Oh, boy. Okay, good. Well, then I'll see you sooner than soon. Fantastic. Thanks so much for having Thank me, Thank you, Pamela. Brian. What Mwah. a treat. Mwah. Wow, God, that was fun. I love talking to people about their history and their and, and finding things out about them I didn't even know. Wow, wasn't Brian wonderful? <sighs> You've been listening to Pamela DeBar's Pajama Party, produced by Aaron Alden and Christian Swain. All sound design by Jerry Danielson and Busy Signal Studios. Find Miss Pamela at Pamela DeBar on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Find all the Pantheon podcasts at pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you find great podcasts. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Pantheon Podcasts. Rock and Roll Archaeology on Instagram and Pantheon Pods on Twitter.
January 1978, a 19-year-old singer-songwriter has released her debut single. Those notes you just heard were the first notes of music that the world ever heard from a young British woman. And with that debut song, she influenced a whole new generation of female singers and showed what women in music could really do. Kate Bush. Hi, I'm Cecily, your host of the podcast, Strange Phenomena, the Music of Kate Bush. In this podcast, I'm discussing the history and story of every song that Kate Bush has ever produced in order, album by album. And every episode features a fan or two talking about why they love that song so much. We talk about not just the big hits. But also the B-sides and her collaborations. So come join me on a journey through the extensive catalog of the one and only Kate Bush. Available now wherever you get your podcasts and a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network.